This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Iwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Luis Alberto Urea is one of my favorites. I'm so delighted he's here. And you guys, he is also the author of our next BNN Book Club pick. Good Night, Irene is a slight departure. You may know him, obviously, from the Pulitzer finalist, The Devil's Highway, which is narrative nonfiction. And then also his last novel, which was 2018, The House of the Broken Angels. It's been a minute since that last book, and I'm so delighted to see you. But we are going spoiler-free in this conversation, obviously. If you want the spoilers, you can join us in July for the BNN Book Club event. But in the meantime, we are going to go hang out with a couple of women called Irene and Dorothy. <laughs> I want to start with the three women who made this book possible. Your wife, Cindy, your mother, Phyllis, and your mother, Phyllis's friend, Jill. Can we yeah. start there and then we'll get into Good Night, Irene? Okay. Yeah. You know, Cindy and I work in partnership. Mm -hmm. We're taking the most insane book tour probably of my career this uh -huh. summer. Uh, and we bought a beautiful vehicle because we're going to drive it. It's going to be our, okay. our, our club mobile tour. We were talking one night and uh, um, we were talking about my mom. And I said, well, you know, she was a she was a donut dolly. And Cindy said, donut dolly, what's that? And I said, no, you know, the, the donut dollies in World War II. And she said, what's what are you talking about? And I said, you know, these women who drove trucks into combat and made coffee and donuts for the troops, sometimes under fire. And she said, what? <laughs> and I thought, wait, everybody doesn't know about this? I didn't. I didn't until your book. And I... Yeah, I had no idea. I I had no idea. I thought everybody, but you know, isn't that the way? You mm -hmm. know, you know, I was born in Mexico. I think everybody was born in Mexico. I think everybody <laughs> has a Mexican grandma, and I'm always shocked that they don't. <laughs> I think the greatest sin we mm -hmm. all commit is taking our moms for granted. Yeah, it's just mom, mom. And you know, if I had been able to step back growing up and say. Wait, my mom was actually a certified war hero? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, so in some ways, it's a way to make amends to that mm -hmm. lapse that we all commit, but also to honor these women who, who you know, are, are a bit forgotten. Donut dollies. I have to say, the first time I saw that in the book, I was just like, dollies, really? I know. They didn't most. I, I can't speak for everybody. Certainly Jill, who we will talk about, yeah. she didn't cut into that business at all. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the women would say, don't call me Dolly. Yeah. And she does that throughout the novel. Don't call me Dolly. In fact, we have pins, buttons that say, mm -hmm. don't call me Dolly. You know, it's a little theme in the book that they, you know, club mobile women mm -hmm. was just too much to say. And we always have a slang thing but they you know they didn't see themselves as dollies certainly i'm sure some did jim harrison who i love as a writer had a hand in bringing this book to the world too yes he did can we talk about jim for two seconds because you and jim share a lot of that sort of you know here's this big life and here are all the senses and the smells and the food and everything else. it's an excuse to talk about jim for a second before we go deep into things well i i loved jim from a distance, mm -hmm. I, we corresponded a few times. Mm -hmm. After Charles Bowden died, 
um, I was asked to be on on the commemorative panel at the Tucson Festival of the Books with Jim. And I thought, oh, my God, are you kidding me? And he was already up on the podium seated when I got there. And I walked in and he looked up at me and he didn't even say hello. He said, my greatest regret in life is that I didn't blurb the hummingbird's daughter. So I thought, dude, you know, <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I sat next to him mm-hmm. and uh, he, he, of course, and there was, there was a scholar with us and we both deferred to, to, to Jim right. Harrison. I mean, yeah. you have Zeus on the stage with you mm-hmm. and he went off. It's on C-SPAN. You can find it on C-SPAN. He was saying inappropriate things. He was being Jim. <laughs> oh yes, he was. And, uh, but during the talk, the the moderator passed a note down the table to mm-hmm. me. I looked at it and it said, can you please shut Jim up? Mm-mm. And I just shook my head like this. Nope. I thought, who cares what I have to say? You know, the great man is here. And Jim finally ran out of steam and I got some words in. But that evening there was mm-hmm. a, a, a supper at a fancy restaurant. Yep. And uh, the long table, they had saved the end stuff for Jim. Cindy and I were against the wall in a very tight space, and he came in. He was very ill, um, not far from passing yeah. at that time. And he saw us, and he squeezed in beside us. So I thought, what a weird blessing, right? Yeah. And he sat next to me, and we were talking a bit. And he said to me, tell me about your brother's death. Mm-hmm. So I would mentioned it to him. And I thought, okay. So I started telling him about my brother's death and his strange you know basically the house of broken angels but mm-hmm. his his sort of uh living uh memorial service that he got to attend like tom sawyer did and harrison looked up at the ceiling like this the whole time and you know this left eye was blind and but i i, I didn't know if he was staring it was it was looking kind of sideways at me right and i was very nervous because that eye and i thought maybe he does see me i don't know what's going on so I told him the whole story and he listened. And when he was I was done, he looked down and turned to me and he said, you know, sometimes God hands you a novel. You'd better write it. And I was just blown away. And of course, Cindy pointed out to me, you know, I've been telling you that for a year or more. Oh, but Jim Harrison. Yes. <laughs> it's just confirmation, dear. Um, so I got to work. Yeah. And you know, you have always written deeply personal books. And it may not surface right away, but I mean, you put a lot of you into every, This is your 19th book. Good night, Irene. It's your 19th <laughs> book. Brings you into new territory. But I'm going to ask you to set it up just a tiny bit because we open in 1943 with a woman called Irene who is based on your mom. Yeah. One hundred and ten percent. Okay. Yes. Okay. My mother's middle name was Irene. Okay. People know that they're very close, at least. They're not the same person, but they're awfully close. And all the events in the book, I won't Mm -hmm. talk about them so that you can be surprised if you are. Um, They follow chronologically the experiences my mother had. And there's a lot. There's a lot. Your mother was part of a two-woman team that drove a two-and-a-half-ton truck to make coffee and donuts 
for American soldiers at the front. And I had no idea this existed. I had absolutely no idea that the Red Cross had this team of, it was what, roughly 120 women throughout? At that, I think? Yeah, at yeah. that time, the the cadre was 120 women in mm-hmm. that group. And they she was in Group F. The the trucks had yeah. it, it had these uh, alphabetical okay. identifiers per per grouping of trucks. They were three women, but the 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 conceit for the novel is that you know no third woman could penetrate right. the friendship. You know, and they had a, a, a circulating okay. population. Um, and there were there were the club mobiles, uh-huh. which were essentially the Red Cross's attempt to put okay. a, a soldiers' club. On a truck. Okay. Eisenhower's great idea. Let's send it mobile. But there are also what they called cinemobiles, which took a portable movie theater they'd set up and show them, you know, Gone with the Wind or whatever, The Wizard of Oz. So that's kind of amazing. Under fire. It is. But 21st century me is saying teal uniforms. Yes. Government issued lipstick in appropriate (laughs) shades. No one was wearing pants. They did. They did wear pants. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. That makes me yeah, feel yeah. a little better. That they does make slacks. me feel better. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that in, in skirts? No, no. No. <laughs> they did wear slacks. Um, but yeah, the, the the lipstick had to be a certain, you know, uh, acceptable shade. It couldn't be, it couldn't be too seductive. Right. <laughs> and, I don't even know yeah. what that means. <laughs> I don't know. They just had they had, they had incredible rules for these right. women. And you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, they were they were before they went, they went to training in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. And they were trained all kinds of weird things, including um how to play board games and card games and lose every time. Yeah. Right. They were supposed to lose because the boys had to feel good. And that makes sense. They were they were morale builders on some mm-hmm. level, though there wasn't anything in place to make them feel better. That was one of the motivations for me, because I saw the um, I saw the long term results of several years of high stress and combat on my mom. Your mom had PTSD. I think so. Yeah, it sounds. I mean, just from what I read coming into this conversation that you and I are having, it very much sounds like. Your mother had PTSD. There's some significant events in the book, and again, we're gonna we're gonna let readers come to them because, as rough as some of this book is, it's a joy to read. And thank it's you. The thank friendship you. between these women, and sort of the way they see the world, and and how they're able to reset their lives because of this experience. It's just it is. The reality of war is the reality of war. It is not cute. It is, I mean, yes, I was just making fun of lipstick and teal uniforms, but at the same time, that also speaks to us as people. It was the 1940s in the United States. We were not, you know, people wore hats and gloves and there were expectations of how you carried yourself and all of this kind of thing. And I'm thinking they're at war in Europe and somehow people are still making donuts and coffee and playing record players and yeah, these women, you know, they were they were asked to be the girl next door, the uh, cousin or sister, maybe mom, maybe girlfriend, but not official girlfriend. You know, just right. to give the boys a sense of normalcy and and hope to keep their spirits up. They delivered mail. 
Right. You know, they they carried chewing gum and and cigarettes and candy bars. They sometimes or they had uh, these books full of the uh, locations of by state and so forth of the other boys so yep. the guys could keep track of where they were yep. it was a very interesting thing and yeah each of the trucks had a record player in the back and they had these speakers on top of the truck and the the women were also djs they right. had to you know harry james <laughs> whatever frank sinatra mm-hmm. um and once in a while i think they would even dance I have a great picture of one of the women dancing with a soldier outside the truck. It was a way to make every every uh, every soldier and pilot feel hope, I think. You know, a little taste of home. I want to go back to Miss Jill for a second, your mom's yes, friend. Because yeah. she was key to this. She was really key to this. I mean, we'll get to the research. You did a ton of research. You and Cindy traveled all over Europe as well. I, I, I want to talk about all of that. Yeah. But Miss Jill introduced you to an iteration of your mother that you had not met obviously I mean, she knew your mother years before you were on the planet and yes. before your mom had had this experience that really fundamentally changed her yeah um yeah jill and my mom lost track of each other in 1954 as my mother became more and more isolated and mm-hmm. shut herself off from the world and i was born after that so she didn't even know i existed and yeah, you marry a newspaper reporter. <laughs> and it's a fountain of research all the time. I want to watch trash TV, but Cindy's researching usually. And uh, we knew about Jill. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an event that happened that m- led me to believe that Jill had died. Um, so I, I just thought she was, I, I grew up thinking that this wonderful woman was, was not with us any longer, you know, in the various research iterations over the many years, Cindy found in my mom's papers, uh, a thing Jill had written and it had a, a, an old, 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 old address label stuck on it. And just on the off chance that somebody was there, Cindy sent a letter. Miss mm-hmm. <laughs> Jill called immediately the next day. She lived 80 minutes from our house. Wow. In Illinois. You know, so you start feeling led almost mm-hmm. that my mother's best friend in the war is here. Yeah. And she was 94 years old and uh, was pretty sure she maybe may have been among the last five or 10 of the women wow. still alive. And, uh, you know, and she called me Lewis, Lewis. And uh, I got on the phone with her, Miss Jill. And she said, Lewis, you must come see me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, ma'am, we're going to come see you. And she said, don't try to wait till I turn 95, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, she's a laugh riot. So we drove down the next yep. day. And yep. this is this was a turning point in my life. It really mm-hmm. was. We. We knocked on her door. She had a big, big old apartment in Champaign-Urbana. We're west of Chicago. And she opened the door, this spry but very old woman. And she bade us enter. And we went in. And on the wall, framed portrait of my mom looking up. 
elegant in her uniform. And I was staring at it. And Miss Jill said to me, you know, Lewis, I drove the truck, but your mother brought the joy. And it, it felt as though the scales fell off. My mother brought the joy. And we realized thereafter that through almost every single photograph of her that's in her archives she left behind, she's joyous. And she's laughing and she's dancing with soldiers and having a cup in, in combat with all these soldiers looking like a badass, you know, with a cup. I thought, that was my mom. And I saw those flashes all through my life suddenly of this insouciant creature, you know, this mother who was a New Yorker, a sophisticated New Yorker. They, you know, she was from Staten Island, which to me could have been, you know, Mowgli's jungle. I didn't know Staten Island from anything. I'd never been anywhere. I'd been to Tijuana, <laughs> you know, but it was up in, in the village of Richmond, you know, in the hills where the old revolutionary houses are. Um, they had a an antique shop in Manhattan, her mother. You know, Steinbeck was a client. Albert Einstein was a client. Then they had this family property in Mattituck, Long Island. All things alien to me. But I suddenly saw this person who she must have been. And I saw all the echoes of that person through her older years. Uh, it was transformative for me. And, you know, getting to know Jill, there, there's no novel without Jill, I don't think. Um, we were friends with her until she died at 102. We, you know, she showed us everything. And she she actually had the map she used in the truck with all of her notations. And she had very well-organized albums and memorabilia, all the way down to talking to her we spent hours with her recorded a lot of it and we realized yeah. it's kind of useless because all you hear is laughter which is <laughs> laugh. we laughed for hours with her but uh at one point i said so i'm having a tr hard time figuring out the interior of the truck where did everything go because there weren't schematics and she said she was looking at the floor she says well my my, my carpet's pert near the same as the inside of the truck and just started telling me now the coffee makers were here and here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm crawling around with my notebook, sketching it. You know, those things were, were incredible. And, uh, you know, I said, were your, was your truck green? She said, no gray. I said, are you sure? And she said, I drove the truck. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she, she, she certainly dictated a lot of the, of the direction and gave me a new picture of who my mom was and what they did and you know what it was like and and the interesting thing was my mother really severely affected by the experience miss right. jill world traveler not messing around just like dorothy mm -hmm. and when jill would get upset it was a very interesting thing she'd say I think I'm going to be sad now. And she'd cover her face. About 90 seconds later, fine. Never saw her shed a tear. She would just, so you can't see her eyes for a moment. And she'd collect herself. She had this incredible, you know, she was like Bruce Lee or something, this control. 
it was amazing to see. So we took her out to to meals, and she still was Dorothy. She was small now, but she was had been six feet tall in the war. Right. My mom was five three. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, people used to call them Mutt and Jeff, which I thought was <laughs> lost on this generation. Nobody knows right. who Mutt and Jeff is. But... It was a comic strip back when yeah, newspaper. It was. it was a comic strip. <laughs> you know, listening to you talk about Miss Jill, too, I can't help but think this is you capturing stories that get lost. This is what you do. You tell stories that might not otherwise get told. You know, I read a lot and I still didn't know about these women. And I'm just also thinking about the way you tell the family story in House of Broken Angels and the fact that it's an American story, right? That we don't have to hyphenate everything, that we just get to be American. Yeah, sooner or later, you know, I think everybody who comes to the United States probably has to go through some kind of a a ritual hazing. (laughs) It's like getting into a sorority or fraternity, perhaps. It had a weird genesis. Yeah, my brother died. Right. Um, and he he had been dying quite a long time. And so many wonderful things, believe it or not, happened around his long death. One of them being that I I asked, because he, he called to tell me, I'm very sick, I have cancer. And I didn't know what to do. I was walking along the local river with my daughter on her nature mm-hmm. walk. Right. I was on the cell phone. And all I could think, and this was till this will date it. I said, uh, what do I do? What do I do? I said, have you have you heard of the Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> La Facebook is this one. I said, no, pues, it's this place where people talk and put up pictures and stuff. And I said, I've noticed that when someone in someone's family is sick, they they ask for prayers. Do you want some prayers? Yes. See, can I do that for me? I said, sure, yeah. Would you pray for my brother? Um, and somebody came up with a logo called Team Juan with a hummingbird on it, I guess, in honor of Hummingbird's daughter, which I was I thought was so sweet. Mm-hmm. So every week I was able to call him say, you've got 50 strangers praying for you. Wow. You know, yeah. 100. Wow. 150. Yeah. Wow. And people would write to me and they were, you know, from the atheist realist group to Catholic folks right. to evangelical folks, Buddhists, Wiccans. <laughs> and this woman wrote to me and said, I and you know my 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 group, we uh have decided to go out sky clad under the full moon, call down the goddess and all this. So I called him, I said, hey, Juan, I got a, a lovely message from a group of Wiccans. And he said, Wiccans, what is that? <laughs> and I said, uh witches? He said, witches? I said, yeah. And they wanted you to know that they're going out sky clad, you know. And he said, guess this is the sky clad. (laughs) And I said, well, they're naked. And he blurted, naked witches are praying for me? (laughs) I said, yeah, isn't that great? And he said, yeah, that's really great. You know, and things like that, they just, they, they just drift away and they're gone it's and it's too beautiful to let slip away you know so the book in some ways wrote itself though it was a lot of pain very painful listening to you laugh while you tell that story of your brother though there's a lot of laughter in goodnight irene too yeah 
which especially when you're telling a story like this, I'm grateful for because you gave me a chance to breathe as I was going through the story. I mean, I really, I got very attached to Irene. I got very attached to Dorothy, but I still needed space to breathe. And I think readers, as they go through, will understand that reference. I'm, again, we're not going to spoil any of this for you. But the idea that you need the humor to balance all of the sort of big ideas, the serious ideas, the hard ideas, all of the, the stuff yeah. that is not comfortable, right? Straight up not comfortable. I'm going to out myself a little bit here. But, uh, you know, earlier in my life, I I, I worked with relief workers in Tijuana, the border and stuff. I, I was basically a missionary. Um without an actual missionary job. I was just volunteering. But I, I've understood that that storytelling, I think, is a form of prayer. And I think if you're if you're going to ask so much of readers, if you're going to put them in such dire straits, I think you need to care for the reader a little bit. I don't want to pander, but I do know that if I may I, if I ask you to go to hell for a second, if I have any conscience at all, I will try to to lift you back out of the abyss. You know what I mean? I mean, even, yeah, I even under the, under the volcano, which may be the most depressing book ever written is really funny. If you have a, if you have a sick sense of humor, you know, drunk humor, that's part of it. Also my mom's favorite writers, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep in, in mind that it's a book I was hoping my mother would appreciate. Um, she loved Hemingway. You know, so our little Barnes and Noble secret revelation is uh, the book begins with the word then. Not only to suggest, oh, there's a whole story before this. Mm-hmm. And now we're we're in action from the first second. But also yep. Hemingway did it Yep, in a movable feast, which is both of our, I think, favorite Hemingway books. I loved it, too. And uh, he says, then blah, yep. blah, blah, blah. So I thought. If mother's watching from somewhere, she'll get it. <laughs> I stole a Hemingway trope, you know. So there are all kinds of little things in it, and both "Goodnight Irene" and "House of Broken Angels" were very painful mm-hmm. and difficult for me to write. Right. Um, so the next book's going to be, you know, semi-farcical to get clear the pipes a little bit, stretch, shake it off a little bit. Because I shake was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask because, I mean, you've talked about it quite a lot in interviews for Broken Angels where you've just said, you know, I wanted to make sure I got my family right. And this is family you knew to a certain extent. And this is family that, and so to pick up someone in a place, you know, that's kind of the ultimate liminal space, right? For a writer, you're sitting there saying, I have no idea who you were. And yet I want to do justice to not only the idea of you. But also my own work, because, you know, as much help as you had from lots of really, really smart women, you still had to sit down at the desk and do the work and create this world and create Irene and Dorothy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thank heavens that the books have done okay and we've Mm -hmm. been able to travel (laughs) without going there. Right. Over and over again, you know, several trips to mm-hmm. to London, and you know, we went to Paris, but yep. we drove all over England, went to the bomber base that's in the book. We oh, wow. we drove all the way all through Germany, mm-hmm. retracing their 
their journey, mm-hmm. um, went to Buchenwald, all of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, those those things are priceless to, to right. reconnect and to, to feel it. Um, but also, you know, little things that we finally, it's, it's amazing it didn't occur to me before, but we finally went to Staten Island. And, you know, it wasn't the Emerald City, but <laughs> great bagels, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. But uh, then we found Richmond Village, and yeah. we found my grandmother's, where my grandmother's house had been, where my mom grew up. And we went to the church a block away that she went to, and across the street, the grammar school my mom attended. Suddenly, I was in my mother's girlhood, and all those little stories yeah. she would tell came back. We walked down her hill. We went to the little creek in the woods where she would read. And, you know, she became clearer and clearer to me as we went. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were at the air base in Glatton, yep. and this is something that that moves me so much. I have pictures of her in her thatch-roofed house from the 15th century where they were, they were bivouacked mm-hmm. and pictures of the pub. And pictures of the churchyard and pictures of a neighbor's house, they're still there. All of it is still there. And I was able to take my daughter and point up to the window and say, That's your grandmother's bedroom. How crazy. And go down to the airbase in Connington. They named it Glatton to keep it simple for the pilots. The landing strip for the B-17s is still there. And there's such eccentric, there's so many eccentric things that are so much my mom's sense of humor. For example, they built this base, but there was a recalcitrant farmer who would not sell his property. So they had to build the base as a giant triangle surrounding his farm. (laughs) And this old codger would go ahead driving his old tractor as the bombers were taking off around. (laughs) It's still there, you know. And my mm-hmm. mom would ride a bicycle when they were they'd taken off, run all, you know, get exercise riding her bicycle. There's one hangar left. And the guy, the manager of the airbase, this lovely man named Jeff. And they call it the 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 uh the fireball squadron because they love that cinnamon whiskey fireball drink. So we went out and drank a toast to the boys mm-hmm. and you know. And he says to my daughter and me, would you like to walk the runway? We said, yeah, Jeff, of course. <laughs> so we have this long walk and he starts telling stuff that's in his heart. You know, some of the ghosts are still here. I said, they are? And he said, oh, yes, they're quite helpful, you know. I said, what do you mean they're helpful? He says, well, if we're repairing a plane and we can't reach the tool, the toolbox will slide toward us. I was like... He may be lying, but that's so good. It's a right? great story. It's a, take and, the story. Uh, and the capper of this is he stepped off into the weeds and he dug around. And he pulled up his triangular chunk of tarmac. They said, this is from the original. This is the original tarmac. And he handed it to me. He said, you should take this because your mum might have stood on it. You know, you're like, oh, man. Wow. But that was... That was the miracle of this. Everywhere we went, there was some fantastic, almost almost fictional thing, you know, that happened. Did you get something from writing this book that you didn't necessarily expect? Yeah, I think so. Anyone who's lost 
their parents, you mm-hmm. know, have regrets. I've, I have terrible regrets. I couldn't save my mom. Right. You know, I tried so many ways and so many things brought her joy, but n- not least of which was after complete isolation right. for my entire life. Um, I ended up living on the East Coast in Massachusetts, and I got to go meet her Aunt Eva in Mattituck mm. and hang out in their house, which is in the book, and see the bedroom my mom slept in. And uh, they had her encyclopedia still from 1919 or something. And I was able to fly my mother to the East Coast. And for the first time in however many years it had been since before the war, she talked to her aunt on the phone from my apartment. I kind of made her do it. She didn't want to. And then I took her down to Connecticut and put her on the ferry. And she reunited with her terrible cousins and her her auntie. And she lived with them for a while. So, you know, that was good. So you you, you always want to try to, to ease people's pain even after they're gone. I think. I hope. Isn't that love? I think it is. I think it is, but I think it's also what you do across your books because you always walk in. I mean, compassion is something that sort of reverberates out of your work. It's something I don't think you can sit down until you have figured out. I mean, even even times when you've you've gone in thinking, well, the story's going this way, and and then you meet someone and you're like, oh, the story is not going. Oh, oh, right. I, you can't. You can't write without being a compassionate person. You do have to leave some ideas at the door sometimes, but I think you have to actually somehow like people in order to be able to do this. Yeah, I think that may be true. (laughs) 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 I, you know, here's a good example for you when I'm working on the Devil's Highway. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, I've been an advocate for migrants and blah blah blah, and I don't like bullies and blah. And I was just convinced that the Border Patrol were awful, yeah. awful. Right. And uh, I I didn't want to take the assign. It was an assigned book. I didn't choose it. Right. And, I remember. And because uh, hey, I, I didn't want to deal with those guys. And I think they knew it. And they put me through some ritual hazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, they're monsters. But I it suddenly hit me that, you know, they're under siege. 24 mm-hmm. 7. They're pretty conservative. And here comes some freaking Mexican named hippie looking guy. And that, back, you know, when I went to see them, I thought, I, I think I thought I was Bono, you know, from YouTube. <laughs> I had hair, I had a, a hoop earring, you know, yeah, man. And they just were like, okay, what's this thing? And I was, I was thinking that they would be the villains of the story and the supervisory agent. Who mm-hmm. took me under his wing, Kenny Smith? I always right. honor him. And the sheriff of Yuma, Sheriff Ogden. These are some tough hombres. And they took me in, and Kenny showed me his soul. And he told me, I'm 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 very close to retiring, and I don't care what people think. I'll talk to you. And I thought, well, that's a practical solution. But uh he was turned out to be this wonderful guy. I loved him to death. In fact, we were standing on the Devil's Highway, and he was confessing his life story to me. And this will probably make your point, but 
I could not help myself. I kept looking at him and looking at him and my heart is melting. Mm -hmm. And I finally blurt, Kenny, I love you, man. (laughs) And he didn't, he never looked at me. He just said, I kind of like you too, buddy. Mm -hmm. Cowboy. And I thought, wow. So how much am I losing through my own prejudice? Right? Try so it's time for me to 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 always try to to check myself if I'm gonna write something. Um, and the other thing, you probably know this, but the one who discovered me oh, and I started my writing life was yeah, Ursula Le Guin. And she was formidable. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she was astonishing, kind, mm-hmm. wise, tough. She used to call herself your tia osita, your aunt <laughs> little bear. And she was a bear. I mean, she would awesome. she would gnaw you to the bone if you were messing up. And uh, she's the one. I was 21, maybe 22 when, I, when we crossed paths. And she, I was in college still. And she, said, she used to call me Luisito, little <laughs> Luis. Back then, she used to smoke a pipe. Okay. Luisito, it's time for us to be feminists. I said, feminists? He said, you're going to be a feminist now. I said, wow, okay, what do I do? You're going to take women's literature courses from now on. Mm-hmm. So I was reading Olive Schreiner and, you know, Doris Lessing and all this stuff. She steered the craft. In fact, that's one of her books on writing, Steering the Craft. And mm-hmm. she did. She just kept pointing me in directions. and. You know, so I, I feel answerable to her, too. You know, I just feel like I have a, a really wonderful tribe of elders. And they 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 delineated a kind of a path, I think, that I, I needed to follow. But isn't part of writing for you also slightly instinctive? That you just sort of know where you need to go? And you're very good with being uncomfortable in ways that not everyone is and you don't hold back. And that's part of the fun of reading you because there are moments, (laughs) there are moments in good night, Irene. And again, I'm not going to spoil it, but where I'm just thinking, huh? Okay. This can't be fun for you on the page, but okay. Okay. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to keep going. And, you know, I am treading lightly because we are talking about your mom. Well, we're talking about a character inspired by my mom. Yeah. But yeah. But just between us, you know. Sorry, I'm having a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to, to try to uh, alleviate that, you will see Dorothy or actually Jill Pitts yes. and my mom, Phyllis, in their own truck. So it's sort of like weird meta stuff that here are the, the, the fictional versions and there go the real gal. And they're talking to each other on the radio and so forth because I wanted to I, I wanted to have that bit of space between mom and Irene, um, though Irene is definitely informed by my mom's experiences. Um, and I also realized that she needed to have a romance, and I just could not get myself to write sex scenes about my mom no way and cindy would tell me just do it i said no i can't do it (laughs) 
but you know, Irene, I could do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this also was a gift from Jill. I've told this story elsewhere, but mm-hmm. I, I, you know, Jill had had pictures of my mother with some smarmy bastard in swim trunks at the Riviera <laughs> hugging on her. You know, and they were a very handsome couple. She looked mm-hmm. like a little movie star all the time. Yeah. Little hairdo, you know. And here he is all hugged up on her. And I said, Jill, who is this guy? And she looked at the picture and she said, oh, that's Jake. And (laughs) I was like, Jake, who's Jake? I was outraged. And she said to me, Lewis, it was a war. We all (laughs) had men. I was like, you all had men? What? But it opened so much, too, that, of course, you know, and uh, this happened after Jill died with Cindy. They The -hmm. the university made a a special, you know, Jill Pitts wing with all of her stuff. Um, But they allowed us to spend the day, just the two of us, just our last journey through. And we were looking at the mail that Jill got and Mm -hmm. there was somebody who wrote. And said, is Phyllis still with that hotshot pilot, Jake? And it felt like another message from beyond because the guy in the novel is a hotshot pilot. Mm -hmm. We didn't know this guy, Jake, was a pilot. So it was just over and over again, there were these weird reality loops that we fell into as we traveled. And, uh, you know, so I thought, okay, that's good. That works. It's just a nod from the universe, yeah? Yeah, so Jake became the handyman. <laughs> do you miss these women? Yeah. The book is done for you? I do. I do, especially, you know, um, the heroic and delightful version of my mom yeah. that I saw glimpses of. I wish she were here. Mm-hmm. She'd be so happy right now, just... That life turned out. Yeah. You know that I have a happy family, kids, mm-hmm. a career she'd be happy about. Um, and we really miss Jill. She was a wonderful addition to our family. So yeah, I miss them. Um, you know, I miss I miss so many things. I I I I find myself missing George Patton because what? they loved him. He loved donut dollies. Okay. He loved donut dollies. Um, and he was, you know, their hero. He protected right. them in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, it turns out now, you know, stories come out that he he might have had a relationship with a donut dolly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not one of mine, damn it. But uh, <laughs> you know. So that's just that's just wonderful stuff. Um, I miss Europe too. I'm yeah. it, it's possible that without my mom's legacy. I wouldn't have known as much of Europe as I got to know as we traveled everywhere. And I was interested also, you know, in the in the the Danish roots of the of the Dunford clan. And so we 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 stayed in Copenhagen, you know. Just wanted to find out if if things were right. Mm-hmm. But isn't some of that are things right? Isn't that sort of also you still have license to make stuff up? I mean, you can't 
You're not writing a, a strict history or a strict biography. I mean, no, to play a little bit too. And I think that shows quite a lot in the book that you're just, there's a swing to the prose on the page where you're kind of like, well, no, then it's not just Benny Goodman. I mean, yes, there is a soundtrack to this book. Don't misunderstand me, but <laughs> there is absolutely a swing to the prose and it's kind of a delight. And again, there is some, we're talking about World War II. This is not, you know, peaches and cream every minute but there are some moments in this book that are just they're wonderful they're absolutely wonderful and there is so much to talk about but before i let you go i have one question okay do you still really want to be mark twain is that still uh, your wife has mentioned that a couple of times throughout sort of the course of your career and i love this idea but it does come back to your mom because your mom would sort of grab you aside and and read lots of Mark Twain to you. And I just, I love the image, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if that's still sort of sitting. Cause I mean, you also talk about Tom McGuane a lot and I love Tom McGuane. Tom McGuane. Are you kidding? Is one person that I'm scared to meet just because I've had him on a pedestal so long is McGuane, but you know, we've crossed paths. We were, we were having, parallel book tours and i'd leave him a signed book and he'd leave me a signed book i never right, saw right. him and he once sent me a postcard i don't apropos of what i don't know but it, he mm-hmm. said even richard nixon knew that life is basically 99 rounds tom i thought <laughs> what? I'm sorry, i don't even know what that means <laughs> but it's so perfectly McGuane. it I'm is like, it totally is this is the best <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, Mark Twain, you know, he was the, my mother began with Dickens, reading right. me Dickens, right? which was very interesting. But when she read me Tom Sawyer, I lost my mind. I thought, okay. what the heck is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Becky Thatcher, mm-hmm. <laughs> my first little romantic fixation. <laughs> and then she followed it with Kipling, the Jungle Books. My mom was smart. She hypnotized me into this stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Mark Twain over and over again crops up. I love him. Uh, I have a lot of his books. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, we find, you know, one of the old ones and buy it because mm-hmm. it's amazing. Someday, I would love to have his autograph just in a frame on a wall some, mm-hmm. somewhere. I happen to have, through friends, a Johnny Cash autograph. Oh, wow. <laughs> it feels like a blessing, you know. It's like, yeah. hey, Johnny, I'm going to get to work now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, the, about the swing, I don't know. I think it's internal. Yeah, is I, I probably wrote much of Irene, you know, to Nine Inch Nails or something. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm love that. listening to music. Always I love that. that. Can I ask what the next thing might be? Have you started thinking about it beyond it just needs to be not about your family? Or have you started sort of playing with oh, yeah. bigger ideas? Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, it's one of my relief books, you know, okay. after after Devil's Highway and Hummingbird's yep. Daughter, I, I did Into the Beautiful North mm-hmm. just for fun. So these books have been very heavy. So the yep. next one, I'll tell you the title. It's called The Zebras of Tijuana. Okay. And it's about the old practice they have in Tijuana of painting donkeys mm-hmm. to look like zebras and then taking tourist pictures with them. And I thought, if that isn't the perfect definition of Tijuana, I don't know what is. <laughs> so it's a picaresque faux history of some folks getting in all kinds of crazy trouble because of the 
fake zebras that they call zonkies. Oh, and, uh, I'm sorry. I did not know zonkey was a... Yeah, oh, there's wow. always something to learn. And I'm bringing back a Tomiko from Into the Beautiful North. He's oh, in- thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I like him a lot. <laughs> I don't have it with me, but I would show you a, a fan made me his fighting stick. It's it's far away, but so I have a six foot long bamboo with a shifter knob in the end, like in the novel, just in case it comes in handy, you know. You never know. You, you never, never is that still in development, by the way. That was in development you know, for series at some point, and then I don't you know it it's ebb and flow, ebb oh, and okay. flow. A lot of the um a lot of those border projects sort of faded away and now Irene I think maybe waking things up so we'll see mm-hmm. you know you stay philosophical I'm into I'm I'm here for the typing the rest okay. of it is just icing you know I'm here for you to type as well but I do <laughs> think that there's an audience who would like to see goodnight Irene on the screen it is very cinematic I think you have this very and again I think just a lot of this stuff is internal for you but your sense of timing on the page and the narrative tension. It's just kind of like, okay, right when I think I'm about to completely lose my mind, you give me a little bit of a break. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, it's not easy to do. It You make it look easy, but it's not easy to do. Well, thank so, you. That's that's very kind. I want to write something that I would want to read. Yeah. yeah. And that may be, you know, why Twain and and McGuane blow me away because they 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 have a warmth and a humanity and mm-hmm. a sense of humor sometimes quite dark but a sense of humor that's always right there in and around the prose they're writing and don't get me wrong i'm i'm a fool for cormac mccarthy too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i read blood meridian many times and there can't be a darker book ever but you know the antidote is larry mcmurtry <laughs> all the guys with an mc in their name but you know, Larry McMurtry did that too, and I, yeah. I've, I've read Lonesome Dove so many times. So I think I just gravitate toward that kind of mm-hmm. maybe worldview. Garcia Marquez was funny as heck. Yeah. So funny's good. Let's keep doing funny. We should keep okay. doing funny. Yeah. Can we just yeah. keep doing more funny? Let's do it. All right. That sounds like a plan. Luis, thank you so, so much for joining us thank on Portover. And again, if you're joining us for the book club, that's uh, July 11th. And there'll be details on Eventbrite and BN.com. But that's when we'll do all the spoilers because I have questions that I sat on specifically <laughs> so that we didn't wreck it for readers because this is coming out right as you pub. So we just want to <laughs> okay. make sure that everyone else can have this fabulous experience because really, good night, Irene is pretty spectacular, my friend. Thank it you is, so much. It is a pretty spectacular book. So thank you again. It's out now and we'll see you when we see you. I'm Jenna Siri. I'm a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over. And I am joined today by Rita Chang Epic, the author of her incredible debut novel, Deep is the Sky, Red as the Sea. This one's going to bowl you over. You're not going to want to miss it. There are pirates. There's political intrigue. There's a little bit of romance. There's something for everyone. Rita, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. I think since this is a debut novel and really such an interesting premise, I'd love to have you start by just setting up a little bit about the book for us. Yeah, so this book is actually based on a life of a uh, real life, you might call her pirate queen. 
who lived in China during the early, late 1700s, early 1800s. And she was uh, primarily operating in the region that we now think of as Hong Kong and, and Macau. And uh, she started from very humble origins. Some records indicate that she was the child of a fisherman, so she wasn't, she didn't come from wealth. Some records indicate that she was kidnapped by pirates, abducted by pirates when she was pretty young and sold to what back then they euphemistically called flower boats. So basically uh, what we these days might call brothels. While she was there, she caught the attention of, uh, you could call him a pirate king. Um, he was the commander of one of the largest fleets in the operating in the, in the area at the time. They got married and then she took over basically command of half of his, which some people find very surprising, like, oh, you know, like he just handed control over half the of half the fleet over to her. But I think it was because she had really proven herself to be an impressive strategist to him. Um, and then after he died, she immediately married his uh, second in command because back then of inherit because of inheritance laws, um, she couldn't inherit the fleet herself. So this book is basically it's a a fictional retelling of her life with some, let's call them speculative elements. And it moves so quickly. It moves so well. You, from the first page, you are immersed in this world that is such a, a deep and interesting set of circumstances for these characters. My question that I think maybe a lot of people would wonder as well is, why pirates? Why this story? How did it come to you? Because it is certainly something that we don't see every day depicted in literature, and it is a little bit more of these fantastical elements that weave in as well. So I just want to know how, you know, how this all came to be and came to you. Yeah, why pirates was a question I asked myself a lot when I was <laughs> writing it. Like, of all the things I could have written about, why am I torturing myself over this thing? This short answer is because I've been fascinated by this, this by pirate life in general, since I was a kid, but specifically by this historical figure, because I'd heard uh, stories about her growing up. I, I was born and raised in Taiwan. But the reason I really decided to turn this into a novel instead of, um, you know, just a passing or instead of a uh, personal interest or hobby is that this was around the time of the 2016 election. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of talk about women in leadership positions. So that got me thinking about women who were leaders throughout history. But I, because of my own writing style and because of my personality, I was always more interested in the women leaders who were, these were not the ideal role models. It, it, you know, if you, if you know what I'm saying, like, this is not somebody that you, you know, point your young daughter to and say, like, when you grow up, you should be like, this is, this is, this was a complicated woman who did a lot of really heinous things because she was a she was a pirate you know she wasn't she wasn't a you know humanitarian that's what i was interested in i thought okay let me let me see if i can try to tackle her story from a more human angle because i had like people were talking about her but i think there was a way in which she was getting reduced to an archetype or getting reduced to like a like a trope you know like it, it was a little bit into like a hashtag girl boss type of thing in discourse and so i was like okay let's let's see what it would be like if i tried to tell her story as a human woman as a human being so that's that's what led to it and you really created a character that 
Yes, there's some morally gray aspects. There's some part, maybe more than a little bit. There's <laughs> definitely moments where you're reading going, you know, eyes wide, staring at the page like, oh, this is this is what's really happening right now. And and you just chug along with it. But at the same time, like you said, the characters are so human and relatable because it feels so incredibly well researched. And that's something that I think when I was reading struck me the most is the amount of information and and knowledge that is imparted through all of this. I'd love to talk with you a little bit about sort of your research process for this because it is it must have been extensive. It was. It was. But, you know, I, again, because I was kind of a nerd about pirates to begin with, it makes it easier when you're already a nerd. Um, But I started with more just um, archival research. So I I read a lot of dissertations are wonderful. I keep telling people this. Dissertations are wonderful resources if you have access to a university um, library subscription, because somewhere someone has written a dissertation about this exact topic. That you're you're writing about, like there there are many PhDs who wrote who've written collectively many books. I started with some of the with just reading a lot of these dissertations about this, what the society was like during Qing Dynasty China around that period of time. I was reading a lot about political unrest and um, that that it was a period in which lots of there were a lot of rebellions because people were really unhappy with some of the wealth disparity and 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 uh, social problems that were that the emperor at the time just was not dealing with and obviously i also read books and dissertations about this particular pirate fleet and this particular woman within and her role within the uh, fleet after i sort of laid all of that groundwork and you know those books gave me a really good sense of the context and what might motivate these characters that I'm writing about, I got to do some of the fun experiential research. Uh, So I flew back to Taiwan. I was actually um, living in Taiwan for about almost a year. And because of Taiwan's proximity to um, the southeastern coast of China, right, like that, the the thin strait that separates uh, separates the two, a lot of the um, immigrants, the waves of immigrants that came over from Fujian to Taiwan they brought over a lot of like their their maritime culture. They brought over a lot of their folklore and spiritual traditions. And so it was really wonderful to be in Taiwan. You know, there's literally a, a life-size replica of a junk ship um, from the, you know, from hundreds of years ago that you can climb aboard and you can like, you know, poke your head into things and like, measure things with your with your arms. And yeah, and go to like temples and see like what are some of the remnants of this culture that we can still find today and then kind of using that to backward project into the 1800s. And your writing makes this all feel so colorful and rich. It never felt, even though there are so many things that I had to Google in order to really fully wrap my mind around, I went on some really intense Google rabbit hole searching through this because there were so many things that were unfamiliar to me. But it never felt like it was just dumping information towards me. It was very synthesized into the story. And as I was going through, I would Google and then I would go back and read a page and be like, oh, that makes so much more sense. And I was able to get such a better picture of what I was looking at. And I'm sure that as you were researching and getting to do those like more experiential things as well, that really helped put those pieces together. Yeah, it did. And I mean, I, I should say, like, I don't deserve all the credit, right? Like my editor just <laughs> a lion's share of the credit for this because 
there were definitely moments in the novel where I would, you know, like I would like write like three paragraphs about the type of types of weapons that they used. And my editor would come back to me and be like, I, I don't think we need all this information. We don't need this information dump here. So thank you for saying that. And also <laughs> my editor, um, shout out to her. It's great. I mean, sometimes there are, you know, other nerdy people reading the books that are like, uh, you know, I could I could do with three more paragraphs on the weapons. But I understand from a commercial standpoint that maybe maybe there's some trimming that needs to happen. But I know that as I was reading it, that was something that was so interesting about this book. And if people can read, you know, these fantasy novels and learn all this uh, magic crafting out there for other not real worlds, sometimes we have to be able to do that with things from our own world as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a good point, right? That for readers of science fiction and fantasy, very often there is, it, it's expected for, for readers to kind of do a certain amount of self-educating or uh, sort of catching up in terms of what the components of the world entail. And so I don't think this book is as intensive in terms of how much you need to, you know, quickly pick up in order to follow the plot. But at the same time, I, yeah, there, I do understand that there are going to be elements that might be a little bit strange. But it's also enriching. I mean, I think that's why so many of us come to literature that is different than experiences that we know, and especially with something like this that is so historical and yet is often so overshadowed by other aspects that were happening around the same time. It's reassuring that literature can do that. It can offer us these portals into something that we wouldn't necessarily encounter going through history books. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can tell you for a fact, I have always been one of those people if you ask me, would I rather learn something through reading a history book or would I rather learn something through fiction, fiction, hands down, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the beauty, beautiful parts, you know, of literature is that you are introduced to things that you might not otherwise have been introduced to. And, but you, yeah, and you grow in the process of reading more things. Definitely. One of my favorite pieces sort of that I ended up on one of my many rabbit holes on in this is the mythology that is woven in this folklore, this piece that is sort of both within Sekyung, our main character's um, experience, but also with sort of these vignette chapters in between of, of folklore themselves that really expanded this story. How did the mythology sort of present itself as you were weaving this story together? So, so the the sea goddess who is frequently mentioned in the novel for folks who haven't read it yet is Mazu, who's uh, who's got I don't know the exact number, but many many worshippers throughout Taiwan and China and um, other parts. Like I think there are worshippers in Japan and elsewhere. One of the facts that I came across while I was doing my research uh, was that these pirates were perhaps surprisingly, perhaps unsurprisingly, incredibly religious often, right? Like you would think like a bunch of people who make their living robbing and stealing from people, you know, but actually they they very often were quite religious. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about the fact that, you know, if you live on the sea and your life and everything that you own can be destroyed in a single instant by like one bad storm, you know, like it, you kind of need to have a certain element of respect for for So Mazu is the sea goddess who is um, mentioned many times in the book. And so once I've learned that these pirates were actually very often quite devoted to Mazu. It helped me think about the elements of their life that weren't um, directly related, the, the aspects of their life that weren't directly related to robbing people and, and killing people. 
And the the other really interesting thing um, about the the name Mazu in Chinese, it translates to maternal ancestor. So there's a maternal element to it as well. Like people think of her as a mother figure, and so themes of motherhood, because they're also quite prominent in the in the novel. I I was like, okay, this is a really nice marriage between between the the spiritual themes and the themes of motherhood. Definitely, it's definitely a. Um... A feminine novel, and I don't mean that in in any sort of like chiclet, whatever that means, you know, kind of way. But there is such a strong female energy between uh, Sekyung, between um, sort of her counterparts that she's dealing with, sometimes adversarially, sometimes in a more you know friendly manner. And I think in, in a historical fiction sense. So often, if you have main female characters in historical fiction, it's like a romance book with, you know, like a flowery cover and those serve their place as well. And there's so many interesting titles in that genre as well. But this is such a strong story of adventure and overcoming. I think in the realm of historical fiction, this sort of sits in a very different place than so many other books. Uh, yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean, I one of the things I really wanted to explore was, so again, another fact that came up in research was that these fleets were actually surprised. I mean, they they definitely weren't, you know, like 50% women, but there were, there were a surprising number of women who belonged to these fleets. And one of the things that I really wanted to explore was how do women of various, you know, various um, backgrounds, various uh, ages, various personalities, how did they survive and how did they thrive within a lifestyle that um, is so often associated with the masculine? You know, like how did they, how did they, how did they befriend one of the, one another? How did they support one another, right? Female friendship in these overwhelmingly masculine environments was definitely something that I wanted to explore. So um, I, I don't think of it as an insult at all. You know, when you say it's a very feminine book, that was that was one of my goals going into it. I wanted this story to be focused on the women in these fleets. And our main character is such a an incredible ups and downs. Really, I mean, there's times where you are so like on board with what she's doing, and you just want nothing but success for her. And you're like, you can do this. Like this is gonna. Be. And then there are so many moments where you're like, oh no, what is she doing? what is happening? Why would you make that choice? But you also kind of know why she makes every choice that she makes. How did you find her voice? How, you know, taking this character that is a real historical figure, but has a lot of competing information out there about her life. How did you find your version of this incredible woman? That's a really good question. I mean, I knew off the bat that I didn't want her to be a completely relatable. I mean, I wanted her to be relatable in the sense that I think we've all done like terrible things that we feel bad about. You know what I mean? Like we can kind of relate to that feeling of like, I really want something and I did something that maybe I'm not entirely proud of to to get it. So um, I wanted her to be relatable in that sense, but she's a hashtag girl boss kind of of character. I wanted her to feel complex and, and human. And so I... I think one of the things that I really tried to do was I tried to, there, there are moments I think that were really in her POV and we can kind of see why she, or at least I hope that readers can see why she thinks she needs to do the things that she needs to do. 
And and then there are moments where I, I'm deliberately kind of pulling out. Like I, I want her behavior. I want her actions to feel a little bit distancing. And somebody asked me recently, why did you start the novel with um, her as an adult as opposed to her as a child? Because so often with stories that about somebody's life, you start with like childhood and you move onward, right? And I, I, I had made it a very kind of um, intentional decision to start with her, not just as an adult, but as the commander of a fleet. Because I realized that if we started her as a sort of peasant girl who's like full of like energy and full of like enthusiasm and hope, and th- that that actually would make people maybe make readers relate to her too much. If, I don't know if that makes any sense. That that if that that I think people will get too close to her too quickly, and then I didn't want people to too easily justify all of the bad things that she was going to do later on. So I kind of start with her as a person who is already making a lot of very morally questionable, let's say, decisions. And then um, then we get more stuff about her childhood. So, I mean, I think the voice was, it was about um, knowing kind of the moments where I wanted to zoom in and knowing the moments I wanted to pull out and then kind of modulating the voice as I felt like was necessary to create that effect. I mean, I definitely noted sort of this balance between when we feel close to her and when we have to pull back because the decisions that she's making or the places she finds herself are sort of go beyond what any of us have presumably dealt with. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully there's not a lot of you know, life or death, pirating decisions happening out there, but you never know. I think that that across the board, you see this growth in her in some ways, but it's not always like the growth we'd imagine. I had kind of written down like, is this a coming of age, a coming into power story, but in a way that is radically different than anything we'd see now? We follow her. There's definitely a transformation in her thinking and her her view of herself that happens as this goes. And I think her voice comes through in, in so much of that. Yeah. I, you know, I, so there's this, um, so I worked as a, as a psychologist before I uh, started really focusing on writing and there's this concept of, I mean, it's basically if you tell people to shock a subject during an experiment, like people probably remember this from their psych 101 class in like college, right? If you tell somebody to like administer a shock, it becomes easier for them to administer more shocks, right? There's a way in which we all, or we're all susceptible to this moral slippery slope that that can happen um, in many different situations. And I think there's more than one character change happening in the book. But at this, you know, one of the things I really also did want to explore is what happens when we kind of just like we we do one thing that's to put it very kindly questionable, and then we do another thing, and then we do another thing, and how do we? How do we justify these things to ourselves, right? Like in order for, for human beings to live, I think we all need to do a certain amount of lying to ourselves. And that's not always a bad thing. Like sometimes lies for ourselves can actually be good for mental health. So like, what are the lies that she needs? What, what's the rationale that she gives herself in order to justify for herself the, the stuff that she's doing? I mean, and for her, the stakes are high. They're the highest. There is, you know, between her need to keep her fleet uh, intact and mutiny-free and 
save herself on that aspect, safeguard her future for her family, for the families of those around her, and the looming threat from the emperor, from the government, and the sort of melding of the colonial and imperial forces off on one side, she is trapped between many things. And those justifications feel in that moment as the utmost importance. It, it does. You know, and yeah, I think the stakes are both personal and they're bigger than her as an individual person. As I mentioned earlier, this was a time of tremendous wealth disparity and um, suffering in China, right? People were, uh, I read somewhere in one of my uh, sources that if you wanted to buy one month's worth of rice, you needed to pay like six, seven months worth of wages. So like there, there's no sustainable system here. You can't possibly keep yourself fed if that's the if that's the going rate. Most of the people who became pirates back then, they weren't doing this because they wanted to like have adventures at sea. They were doing this because they were starving and their families were starving, you know? And so she, I think she also did feel this tremendous responsibility to like, these are the people under my employ they joined so that they could eat and that they fight so that their families could eat. I I can't really let them down. And yeah, and as you said, there's a way in which that can easily turn into, well, then I have carte blanche to do whatever I feel like doing in order to keep this fleet afloat. And she certainly makes choices that are as extreme as they come. Yeah. Um, but when she's faced with a lot of those uh, instances, there's such an interesting sort of balance between these decisions that she's making, the influence of those around her, and the fact it always comes back to sort of this idea of how much violence is in a woman, I guess. There's so much that theme really struck me as I kept reading this response from others to her as sort of the undervaluing of what she may choose to do or who she may choose to be because they don't expect that this woman could make these choices and be this person. I think to this day, there remains this idea, right, that women are naturally kinder or like, we're, we're like, like you know, if, if women were in charge, then there would be no war. I personally find that view a little bit simplistic in the sense that I think that, first of all, I think that there are many different types of women, right, to reduce all women to kind of one category, I think is patently untrue. But also, I think that a lot of it is circumstances. It is true that if you don't have any problems with financial security, food security, housing, you know, there's a way in which like once things in your life are lined up right, it can be easy to say, I have no violence in me. When things get bad, that's when we find out what people are capable of. And for her and for many of the other women who were in her fleet, Things got bad. I was trying to push back a little bit against this idea that like, okay, well, you know, um, women are incapable of violence or were incapable of um, aggression just because, because of being women. And your female characters, they sort of run the gamut in different degrees of this. I mean, between Sekyung, um, her friends from her past, um, sort of the woman who works with her on the boat and does the money to the wife of one of the other fleet commanders. There's a lot of these varying levels of moral gray aspects. There's a lot of choices that these women make that sometimes go beyond even what she would do to yes. sort of 
achieve what they what they want and what they think they need. Absolutely. Because again, like people, you know, people, including women ex- exist on a spectrum, right? Like for every, you know, like there, there are people who are incredibly kind and who would rather sacrifice themselves than, than another person. <laughs> and there are people who are, you know, more kind of higher up on the psychopath kind of spectrum who um, take without guilt, take without regret. I didn't want there to be only one type of woman in this novel. And for readers of historical fiction, so often it's just refreshing to see multiple female characters in a novel. There, I think there are so many versions of this story being told where there wouldn't be this interaction between women. Um, I think there are other versions of this story out there that would come with just her facing these male adversaries and would really lack that aspect of interaction between women. But I think that's something that gives this story so much more depth and so much more um, humanity because there is a, a more realistic and relatable set of interactions between these characters. Thank you. And and again, I can't really even take credit for this. Like, I would love to say, like, this is all my own brilliance that I came up with. But like, the fact of the matter is, um, so a lot of these characters were real. It's not like I was like, oh, I, I'm only, I'm going to write these different types of women characters to, you know, kind of make a point about gender. There's this one character in there, as you mentioned, the uh, one of the leaders of a rival slash friendly fleet, depending on how you how you um, view them. She seems like a character out of a comic book. She was real. Like this was this was a real person. We have historical records about her. So I yeah, I think a lot of it was just when I did the research, I, I was like, these are people who not only were big players on in, in this scene at the time, they would make fascinating characters for for a book. So I just put them in there. And they definitely, you know, the existence of them in history is something that is so interesting because often I think these stories get overshadowed by, you know, their husbands, presumably. So often I was, I mean, I was even reading that so often Sekyung is even referred to only as the the wife of so-and-so rather than her own name, which yeah. is one of those things in history that I think hits us all pretty, pretty deep. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, no, her, so the two names that she's most commonly um, known by in at least not just the English-speaking world, but I think also in many parts of East Asia, um, Zheng Yisao and Xingxi, they both translate to Zheng's wife. Even though we have her, we have her name, like we have records of her name. So it's not even like her name was like lost to history. When I sat down to write this novel, I was like, absolutely not. We're calling her by her name. To me, that seemed a, a foregone conclusion. It is those things in history that you almost, you don't want to believe they're real. You don't want to believe that this is how this has been passed down. But I think for so many women, it's, of course, you know, you get used to reading that. Oh, again, another example of that sort of erasure, especially in this where if when you research and look at the things, even if you just like go to Wikipedia and look up the things there, her accomplishments, whether good or bad, are extensive and you wonder, it makes you think of all the other things out there that are just gone from history. Absolutely. Yeah. It is my firm belief that the version of history that we learn in schools or the you know history version that we uh, had passed down to us, that 
women's contributions were, re- I mean, I don't have a number for you, but like it was reduced by at least 50%. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. there's a, yeah, yeah. I, it's, I had no proof of this, but it is my firm belief. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think there's, it's all the things that eat with just even like the most cursory bit of research you can discover. And then that makes me think of all the things that are really, truly like gone forever. And then you have to step back and go to books like this and maybe other like revisionist history to sort of calm yourself and remind yourself that we can we can do better and we can work on it. I absolutely agree. As you were finishing up this story and and leaving this world, do you find yourself missing these characters at all? Or is it like, I'm glad I got that all out and I got that done, but I am glad I don't have to be a pirate for right now. As you were asking that question, I had this image of like a group of people on a road trip. Like it's like when you're on the road trip, like you like you see a lot of sites together, like you take a bunch of cool photos. And also you fought a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like you had our disagreements about like which inn you wanted to stop at overnight. And then at the end of the road trip, you kind of never want to see these people again, because I think I will forever have a soft spot in my heart for these characters, just because they are the first ones that I wrote into a novel. Right. But at the same time, I think I was with them for this really cool, you know, road trip slash, you know, sea voyage. And the sea voyage is over and um, I'm ready to embark on a different voyage altogether. I miss them a little bit reading, which, you know, I, I'll just go back and start from the beginning again. I, there were moments where I was like, well, I got to mark that to read that again. So the rest of us will just have to start back over from the beginning. But I always like to round out interviews with my favorite question, which are, what are some of your literary influences? Who do you feel like makes you the reader, writer, um, that you are today? Yeah, that is always such a difficult question for me to answer. I feel like my reading came in phases. It came in, um, you know, pardon the pun, waves. Like there was the first wave when I was in high school and like col- early college, maybe. That's when I kind of, I discovered literature with a capital L. Do you know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. that's when I got introduced to like the the big names. And I remember at the time I was... I was reading a lot of Shirley Jackson. I was reading a lot of Angela Carter. And then I was like, oh, you know, I I'm, I wonder why I am reading mostly um, European or uh, white American authors. And so um, I, I started uh, diversifying my canon and I started reading a lot of Toni Morrison, a lot of Jhumpa Lahiri, um, who had just around the time um, come out with the interpretive maladies. So th- that was like my first phase where... Um, I was discovering, you know, capital L literature. And then when I started writing more seriously, like when I kind of said to myself, I, this is a, this is a path that I want to pursue. I was reading, like, I've been reading for the past, like, you know, five years or so, a lot of um, Mariana Enriquez, who, um, whose two story collections, Things We Lost in the Fire, and, um, more recently, The Dangerous of Smoking Bed. I don't write horror, but the way that she sets the mood, the way that she kind of like describes things, um, are, she's just so, so skilled. So um, Mariana Enriquez, I've um, read a lot of Karen Russell. Um, I uh, have read a lot of Tiffany Yannick, um, who I think plays with form in such interesting ways. And the Japanese author Yoko Ogawa, who, um, who has written both amazing novels and short story collection. Jasmine Ward is another personal favorite. Um, so I, but, but also like, I just sometimes enjoy like big, fun commercial, like 
I love Susanna Clark. Like I read both like Jonathan Strange and Miss Norrell and uh and Pure Nessie more recently. I read both of them and like over I mean that book is you know for people who like Jonathan yeah. Strange and Norrell's like this. Like I read that book in like, I don't know, three days because I couldn't put it down. So I'd like to think of myself as having a pretty diverse interest in, in terms of the types of books I read. And I think those are the people. So they've all influenced me in different ways. Absolutely. I mean, all those diverse influences have really converged. I can see some of those when you like mention certain things. I'm like, okay, I can kind of, I can maybe see where some okay. of that comes so from. I don't want to put you on the spot, but now I'm really curious because I love being, uh, I love like, hearing that I've been, I've been influenced by somebody. I, so I think definitely when you mentioned um, Piranesi, I can definitely feel some of those like tonal pieces that, I mean, obviously there's some like similarities, there, but I can feel some of those tonal pieces in there when you, when you mentioned it. Yeah, Piranesi is, it's, I, I think it's really kind of such a wondrous novel because there's this really interesting mystery at the heart of it. Like, what's going on, right? Like, what is this place? But at the same time, there is such a feeling of the numinous or of the spiritual and liminal in that book that I definitely, I mean, I I read Piranesi um, after I finished the first draft of the this novel, but like, I was like, I want to really try to um, amp up some of these um, these feelings of the numinous in this novel as well. I think our readers, anyone who's read Piranesi, I think it will absolutely find so many things in this that they can sort of dig into and and like immerse themselves in. But I have to end with um, every author's least favorite question, which is mm-hmm. what's next? What are you working on to come? And I will give you the answer that I'm sure everybody hates uh, hearing or getting, which is, um, I'm I'm currently working on a couple of things, and there neither is in um, an advanced enough stage yet that I feel super comfortable talking about it. But um, but I am working on a couple of things, and um, true to me, they are they're all kind of like weird um, things with speculative elements. So I'll just I'll leave it at that. Well, I can't. I mean, I can't wait. I'm on board for whatever. So I'm sure that when we get that information, it's going to be some really great stuff. But Rita Chang Epig, thank you so much for joining us today for your incredible book, Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. It's out now. People can pick it up. They're not going to be disappointed. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We've got a special double shot episode today. So I've got two fantastic booksellers who are going to recommend books for Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea, and Goodnight Irene. Madison, you are over in the Grove in Los Angeles. And Jamie, you are over in Leewood, Kansas. Madison, I think I'm going to have you start us off with a recommendation for Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. So when I was thinking of books to recommend, Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea has to deal with travel among ships, pirates, all the hullabaloo. We love to see it. So when I was thinking of books to recommend, I kind of wanted to stay with that theme of adventure and kind of, you know, sticking with the pirate theme. So I, I chose The Girl from Everywhere by Heidi Hellig. It is a duology fantasy. And in this book, you follow a girl named Nyx. She has spent her entire life aboard her father's ship. But what is peculiar and unique about his ship 
is that it can travel anywhere in the world, any place in time, and any of your favorite stories, as long as there is a map in which the ship can travel upon, which I think is a very unique plot point to this book. Because think of how many times we open a book and there is a map in the first beginning pages. So as long as you have that map, the ship is able to travel centuries, myths, stories, all your favorite tales, it can do it. But what the main focus of this book is, is that her father is so focused and really, really wants to get a hold of a map from 1868 Honolulu. And that is because that is where Nix's mother is, and he wants the love of his life back. The plot twist is, though, if he goes back to this time, there is a possibility Nix could disappear forever. So then you kind of see her kind of battle with this feeling and thoughts of, is it worth it to be by my father's side and go back to this time when there is a possibility I could disappear forever? And there's really kind of no like swaying her dad away from this path because he is so, so, so set on it. So instead you kind of see her come into her own with this like ragtag team of people. If you love a good ragtag team, this book has it you kind of watch her fall in love for the first time on her own and just kind of come into herself. And again, I think the setting is one of the most intriguing parts of this book because it is a ship that can travel anywhere. It kind of also gave me those like reminiscent vibes of kind of like, you know, the ship in Peter Pan, Captain Hook's ship, how it can like travel to and from Neverland, but it has access to so many different worlds and avenues. Not necessarily time travel, but still. So I thought this book had a lot of unique aspects that you don't really see in fantasy because I think it's kind of easy to fall into certain tropes. And while this one has some of the classic tropes, it does have like love triangles and you have the comic relief character. It is still, I think, at its plot, like that ship that can travel is really, really intriguing, which is why I chose The Girl From Everywhere. That was by Heidi Hellig. So Jamie, why don't you kick it off next? I'm going to talk about uh, a great book, Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wine. This is a book that has probably been on your uh, TBR uh, list for ages and ages because it is on many, many, many recommendations and recommended reading lists and for good reason. Uh, this is the signal you've been waiting for though. So if you haven't picked this one up, it's time to dust it off and uh, move it to the top of the pile. Um, this is a young adult novel. I don't often do as many young adult novels, even though I do read quite a lot of YA. It, this was just published uh, over just over 10 years ago. I think it just had the 10th anniversary. And it's a book where everyone who reads it says, you got to read this book. Um, people press it into each other's hands after they read it. While there are many, many, many adult World War II novels to choose from, many of them not on par with uh, Goodnight Irene, which is exceptional. This one is is a YA. And so a World War II book is, is a much more rare beast in the YA space. This one is a cut above just about all of them. So like Goodnight Irene, the story focuses on two friends, and uh, they are a pilot named Maddie, and her codename is Kitty Hawk, and a spy, Julie, who is codenamed Verity. Their plane has crashed in Nazi-occupied France, and Julie is captured, and we spend the first part of the book with her as she writes her confession, the story of how she got there. And the focus of that confession really begins um, with her friendship with Maddie and on their common interests 
in uh, the war effort and in airplanes and flying. And it can all seem a little detailed as you're going through the first portion of the book, but man, oh man, (laughs) do those details pay off later. So the second half of the book switches up the POV. And now we get everything, this whole story from Maddie's perspective. And like many books with a split POV like this, things take a big turn in the back half of the book and more and more connections are revealed to Verity's story. And so it becomes really hard to put the book down as you get to that point. You really want to see how everything is going to line up. The research that Wine um, has put into bringing, you know, the uh, the British war effort in 1943 to life to the planes and even the Nazi interrogations and their methods is is exceptional. If you love the detail of a historical fiction book and you like a thought-provoking plot, you're going to love this uh, no matter your age. You certainly don't have to be a teenager to enjoy reading about these really brave and clever best friends and the links that they will go to to protect each other when everything they've ever known uh, has been replaced by war. And so that is, again, Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wine. Thank you both so much. Uh, Great picks as always. But that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at at Barnes & Noble. Madison, Jamie, where can we find you? Uh, You can find me at my store at BN Events Grove. And you can follow my store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Goodbye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.